Hi there. Welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Doluale. Thanks for your company today. As the most prominent gateway, as well as being the commercial capital of Nigeria, Lagos is in a unique position to gauge as well as react to many of the most critical health challenges the country faces. From the feared resurgence of the COVID-19 pandemic to increased cases of monkeypox, Lassa fever and other endemic diseases, the state usually gets to come face to face with them first. In fact, the World Health Organization, WHO, has just declared monkeypox a global health emergency with the highest alert level as more than 16,000 cases have now been identified in more than 75 countries, including Nigeria. My guest on the program, however, believes that a robust mechanism of response, including the continuing upscaling of facilities as well as personnel, is being undertaken, and that rather than a reactive policy, a careful balance of lives and livelihoods is the way to go in dealing with these situations. Newsnight talks to a professor of internal medicine, hematology and environmental health, the current commissioner for health in Lagos State, Aki Abayomi. Honorable Commissioner, thank you for your time. It's nice to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I, I guess when people see you, they're going to wonder what it is this time. <laughs> and uh, I, get, I, I think I should start from, it's been in many of the media outlets that um, our numbers are rising again. And there are those who have said, depending on whose figures, but the ones that I saw are being referred to as NCDC figures. Uh, there's been a more than 300% rise month on month from June to July. Uh, and that has some people worried, mm -hmm. particularly because they say outside of Lagos, there are very few, if any, other states testing. And so whatever numbers we get are not an accurate depiction of what's really going on. Do you agree with this? And is there cost to... Should I use the word be alarmed? So we haven't dismantled our COVID testing infrastructure. The only thing that changed was because we had come out of the fourth wave, the federal government decided to drop the mandatory PCR testing for travelers, which was one of our key indicators of what's going on in the state. We've found out over time that the points at which we trigger wave coincides with certain times of the year, characterized by high travel for Christmas and for the summer vacation. So we always had a heads up intelligence because people traveling in had to test. And those that were positive, we picked it up early. And then obviously there'll be a slight lag between imported cases and community transmission. But we've done away with that because we're trying to normalize COVID, you know, not make it one of those things that just keeps people, you know, uh, anchored down and, you know, slowing down the economy. So obviously the virus has been imported because there's COVID all over the world, um, various levels of wave five and wave six. Lagosians and Nigerians are very mobile people, so we anticipate that we're going to see some increased activity around this time, especially with all the kids coming back for vacation. And kids are usually the ones that are socializing abroad and mixing and catching various viruses and bringing them home. So what we've picked up in our setup of uh, both public and private laboratories is a low level activity 
increasing gradually. You know, we don't know whether that's going to trigger a full-blown full fifth wave. Uh, it coincides with what federal government are also observing from their various uh, testing sites. We give our data to Abuja, and Abuja synthesizes and manages the data and publishes it to the general um, populace. But uh, we also have anecdotal evidence that there is increased activity in the community. People are using a lot of rapid tests, which is not captured in our data systems, but we hear about it and we see people. But one of the key um, markers of, of significant activity is admission into our care centers. So both our public and our private COVID care centers or isolation centers as you'd know them. We have really excess capacity at Yaba in IDH, which we've built over the past four years with a lot of other infrastructure. So we maintain that and we're on ready standby all the time. We're monitoring the activity at Yaba and it's almost zero. Uh, we also have in parallel the home-based care system, which means that if you're tested positive, immediately your name and your number and your contact details goes to Eco Telemed. Eco Telemed contact you to find out how you're doing and to see if we can manage you at home or whether we need to admit you because your symptoms are moderate to critical. So far of the positive cases that we've been picking up, which is a low-grade activity, uh, our contact with the clients uh, shows that most of them are mild, asymptomatic or moderate and very well suited to managing at home. In the background, we're doing a lot of activity preparing. You know, we're always once, trying to be one step ahead of this virus. So we are, we've got a lot of elaborate equipment in Yaba. We've recently acquired a sequencer, a gen genomic sequencer. So all our positive cases, we're subjecting them to uh, genetic analysis to see which variant is coming into, into Lagos. Do we, are, we, are we going to get any surprises? Are we generating any mutants ourselves? Um, we obviously have all our laboratory infrastructure in place. We have all our isolation centers in place. We have a huge capacity to admit. And we are still partnering with the private sector to make sure that if we do get a massive surge of cases, that both the private sector testing and both the private sector um, care centers are intact and can absorb. Because some people, we can absorb a lot as government. But some people prefer to go to private, you know, so we want to make that option available. available. But by and large, we're trying to um, routinize COVID now as a way of life, you know, so that even if there is a, another subsequent wave, and what we're seeing is uh, community transmission, but people are not getting very sick, which means one of two things. It means either the virus has downgraded itself or we've achieved a significant amount of herd immunity in Lagos and Nigeria. And herd immunity is acquired either from natural infection or from vaccines. Right. Now we've had four waves, which means that most Lagosians have seen this virus at least once, sometimes twice or three times. So everybody in Lagos, by and large, and by virtue of the heavy population density in Lagos, Whenever we've had a wave, it, it, it spreads through community very quickly. So I imagine that most Lagosians have been infected at one point in time through the four waves, if not once, multiple times. A, a significant number 
well, although low compared to international numbers, are being vaccinated, and that process is going on. So when you add natural infection to the gradually increasing numbers of people being vaccinated, you have a community resistance to COVID. So it sort of adds up that we are not, we're seeing infections in community, but we're not seeing sick people and people are not dying, which means that we have some kind of pushback to this virus. And so it is now transforming into something like the common cold or, COVID or, or the flu, you know, where you get it, you get sick, you stay at home for a few days. It doesn't stop life in Lagos. It doesn't stop the economy. Uh, what we learned from the four waves is that sometimes your exaggerated response can be worse than the than the offending problem, you know. So we don't want to uh, stop livelihoods in Lagos, break down, you know, security, cause chaos, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, so COVID is there. Yes, it's all over the world. But I think the world is learning to live with COVID. And we in Lagos have started to live with COVID quite a while ago, and we're trying to continue that. Now, uh a lot of people are familiar with COVID and we're just getting settled into it, as you said, mm -hmm. normalizing it, if you like. Yes. Then other things uh, started coming up mm -hmm. uh, and um, an awareness problem was again generated. Let, let, me, let me give you an example. When monkeypox arrived in Europe mm -hmm. and there were accusations back and forth as to where it came to Europe from, mm -hmm. uh, there, there were uh, amongst the index cases they said one was from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And that again sent shockwaves back here to say, oh no, please, not again. Yes. Uh, before some of the authorities here then said, look, we've been dealing with monkeypox mm -hmm. for quite a while. So this isn't new. It's not like COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so there isn't really a reason or need to panic. Yes. Uh, in Nigeria, as far as you know, is the awareness level for this quite high enough? How does one know, for example, that someone has monkeypox? We can now talk about COVID because quite a lot of people know that there's been a massive awareness campaign and all that. But mm -hmm. in the case of monkeypox, if it's been around for that long, how mm -hmm. come it's remained under the radar uh, even as other things have taken prominence, even including the likes of Lassa fever? Yes. So monkeypox, we are not unfamiliar with monkeypox. It sort of comes, a couple of cases come every year um, and, and, and we're ready for it. We know how to diagnose it. We know how to manage it. It's a relatively benign infection that presents itself with chickenpox-like vesicles on your face and on your palms. Uh, it's not very contagious, um, but that is the West African variant. There is another variant that comes from East Africa, uh, sorry, from Central Africa, around the Congo. Um, it's a slightly different variant. It's a bit more contagious and it's a bit more aggressive. And it, 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 we have, through the literature and our colleagues in that part of Africa, have, we have the information that more people are succumbing to monkeypox in this Central Africa region. Um, and so, but the, the variant that is, 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 is circulating abroad uh, through genetic analysis seems to be the West African variant, which is the one that we see in Nigeria. Uh, which is why when you see the cases arising exponentially in Europe, it's not accompanied by uh, very large fatalities. In fact, very few fatalities compared to the Central African variant. So thank God it's not the Central African variant that's 
that's causing, the, causing the problem. So the question is, why are we seeing so many cases abroad? Not in Nigeria. We have only seen about seven this year in Lagos. You know? And we've sensitized our general hospitals and our PHCs. They all know about it. We've had conferences. We've talked to them. If you see cases that look like this, don't hold on to them. Refer them to Yaba, because that's where we'll isolate them, make sure they don't transmit it to other members of the community. We manage them. There is as yet no treatment for it, so it's just care and counseling and uh, normal uh, inpatient uh, management. Um, but what we are gathering from the European and other parts of the world is that this spread of monkeypox is associated with certain lifestyles. You know, and they're attributing it to communities of uh, homosexuals, men having sex with men, and sexual networks. Uh, which is in keeping with the nature of this virus because it is transmitted by very intimate contact. You know, just me and you sitting here, if you had monkeypox and I, you know, was sitting next to you, it would be very difficult for you to give me monkeypox even if you sneezed or coughed. You know, so it, it, it relies on very close contact, either you're sleeping in the same bed or you're very intimate with somebody. So we're not surprised that this is the nature of the escalation abroad. Uh, and it doesn't mean that it's a different variant, even though we're working on analyzing the genetics of what we have here in Lagos and what's coming from abroad. It doesn't necessarily mean we're dealing with a new variant, but there is some suggestion that the, the, the variant that's circulating in Europe and the rest of the world, even though it originates in West Africa, has certain new mutations. So it might be that lifestyles uh, in the developed part of the world where these networks are operating and where this transmission is high is giving this virus the opportunity to change somewhat. And maybe that requires some elucidation. As far as we're concerned here in Lagos, it's not bothering us. We are cognizant of it. We're ready. Our diagnostic capabilities are on par. We are setting up sequencing for it. Of course, we have our isolation facilities already stand by. All our doctors know about it. So we're just ready in case we see an arise in cases either of our indigenous viruses or it coming back from Europe uh, by the usual air, air, air transportation. If it's a different, slightly different uh, variation on our own, well, we'll pick it up when it does come. This tends to bring to prominence the importance of community health. Because many of these things yes. are going to happen at the communities Correct. Uh, and then they're going to be detected and then managed, even yes. from what you've said so far. Correct. That's usually the procedure. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess the next thing is to take a look at that community health status yes. uh, at our various community levels, uh, the primary healthcare centers Correct. and so on. Uh, a lot of emphasis is placed on our tertiary health mm -hmm. centers because mm -hmm. those are the ones who gain prominence, they're mm -hmm. the ones who have, mm -hmm. shall we say, the fat budgets, if you mm -hmm. like. But um, the community health centers, which is where most people will ever get to, yes. uh, seem to be less prominent. Correct. How important are they, especially in an era where we're dealing with a series of pandemics? So the emphasis of this government um, has been to rebuild the primary platform primary healthcare platform. As you rightly said, 80% of people will go to a primary healthcare facility. 
whether it's a government or a private sector, that's the first port of call, other than our traditional medicine and alternative uh, practitioners, which I'll come to later because we can't ignore them because they're part of society and people use them. So uh, what we've done is to um, pay attention to those two grassroots um, um, service, healthcare service delivery systems, the primary healthcare and the traditional and complementary and alternative medicine, because that's what our people use. So traditionally, you know, in terms of manpower, infrastructure, governance, very weak, you know, but we've been strengthening it over time. Each successive government has been building on the primary healthcare structure to strengthen it because that's the base of the pyramid. You know, the secondary and the tertiary builds upon a strong primary healthcare. So what we've done here is we've, we have a strategic master plan in this dispensation. And in that master plan, we've looked at the key um, areas that we need to rejig, refine, and redefine. And PHCs and traditional and complementary are one of those areas. So we've, um, we've, we've done an unpacking of that system. And we've looked at the infrastructure. We've looked at the funding. We've looked at the human resources. So let me start with infrastructure. The general tendency was that people convert houses to clinics, so they're not purpose-built. And in a non-purpose-built primary healthcare facility is a disaster because if you are not sick when you went in, you will be sick when you go that's in. You go. You, that's where you catch COVID if you had hypertension, you know, something like that. So Mr. Governor said, go away and develop a master blueprint for medical infrastructure transformation. So we started with two things. We started with the PHCs and the general hospitals. And we've developed this very amazing blueprint architecture for PHCs using international designers plus our own indigenous designers to get uh, a new way of building uh, medical facilities fit for purpose. So in the PHCs, we have this sort of open ventilated, very translucent, their attention to infection prevention control, able to repurpose under pandemic circumstances. We finished our blueprint and we're just about to start rolling out new buildings of this nature. So they are fit for purpose. They're designed for patient flow, staff flow. They're designed to reduce infection uh, contraction during a consultation. They're very low energy because you see what's happening to our petrol and our diesel. The prices are skyrocketing. We can't have these medical infrastructures that cost an arm and a leg to maintain. So low maintenance, we've worked with our agency for, for maintenance to design very low energy, low maintenance, a well aerated, designed to suit the environment and the climate in which we live with some cultural um, context built into it as well. Right, right. The same thing we've done with uh, the general hospitals. But coming back to your point, so that's the first thing to do is to build infrastructure that's fit for purpose. Then we need to increase our manpower and our training within those facilities, which we're doing. And then the third thing is to find a way of the, the governance structure. Before, we didn't have a strong agency or the board um, that uh, governed the activities of the primary healthcare platform. So we've done that, we've put that in place. 
a very strong board with, and, and the governance structure is the board, uh, the, the, the uh, local government uh, authority, health authority and the ward authority. So now all three structures are in place. Now we have to work with the local government, the state government and the federal government to make sure that the PHCs are the first port of call and that patients are not bypassing the primary health care and going to overcrowd the general hospitals and the tertiary facilities. And most uh, competent primary health care practitioners can deal with 80 to 90 percent of anybody's complaints. So that's where we're putting all that emphasis into PHCs, building new PHCs, getting new staff engaged, defining a, 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 a demand structure in terms of who pays for health, which is why we're introducing the insurance scheme. And we're, you know, it's a it's a blended finance approach. You know, there's government funding. We're increasing government budget allocation to health. We're engaging donors to make sure that donors are coming in to look at our exciting strategic plan for the next two or three years. And of course, we're bringing in insurance. Of course, people still want to pay out of pocket for certain things, but if you buy our insurance now, we're trying to make sure that when you buy insurance, you're actually buying something that's worth it. So when you go to a PHC, whether it's a government or a private facility, and both can be empaneled, that you're actually getting value for money. That brings me to the key issue which you raised in answer as you were ending the last the answer to the last question when you talked about funding mm -hmm. and the role of insurance. Mm -hmm. um, I did allude to it when I was starting when I talked about the fact that you know a lot of funding goes to tertiary because that's yes. where it seems as if it's more glamorous. The ailments there are of more importance and all of that. But as a whole, the health sector funding is. I don't need. For you to tell me this, we, we had the experience when COVID arrived unannounced. It's very inadequate. Yes. Uh, and even if government was to put 100% of its funding into health, there will still be gaps. Correct. So which brings the issue of other funding mechanisms, one of which is this insurance you mentioned. Uh, how useful is it? Because many people start off with a trust deficit uh, of insurance in Nigeria. And mm -hmm. therefore, when you talk about health insurance, People say, well, when I'm sick, I'll, I, I'll deal with that when I'm actually sick. Um, it's a mental, it's also a psychological thing. How are you dealing with that? So that's a very interesting question, Laddie, and it's really the crux of the matter. You know, uh, we don't come from an insurance culture. You know, people, unless you force them, when you drive a car, you know you can't drive a car without insurance, so you're forced to buy insurance. Otherwise... You drive around without insurance and, and just pray that you don't have an accident, you know. But when you do have an accident, then you thank God you had insurance, right? So, <laughs> so, so it, the same applies to health, you know. Uh, if you leave health as insurance for health as voluntary, most people won't buy insurance. So we, Lagos has been pushing back uh, on the national health uh, insurance uh, um, protocol because we, we believe that it, it needs to be mandatory. And now President Buhari just signed the National Health Insurance Authority bill into, into uh, effect, which are one of the key areas there is that it makes the purchase of health insurance at the state level mandatory, which means that it's not an option. As you walk around in Lagos, breathing Lagos air, eating Lagos food and doing business in Lagos, you must carry 
Lagos State Health Insurance in your pocket. So now it's become mandatory, we're going to domesticate that in Lagos. We tried to make it mandatory before, but the, the, the fact that it wasn't mandatory at federal weakened our argument. But now that federal have made this a mandatory component of insurance, it's very easy for us to domesticate that. Now, um, once it becomes mandatory, then you know, a lot more people will be compelled to acquiring this insurance. insurance. Now, we can't stop there because if you buy insurance and you go to the point of sale, which is the clinic, which is where you're going to receive care, and you have a bad experience, you know, you're not going to come back. You're going to say, well, I'm going to abandon this. You know, I'm going to try and default and just go to where I know I'm going to get good health and pay out of pocket. Right? So what we're doing, it's a catch-22. As people are uh, patronizing the health insurance scheme, we as government are putting a lot of emphasis into where people are going to go to receive this treatment. this treatment and their first port of call, which ties in very nicely with the question you asked about the PHCs. You know, so that's where we need to really build the, and diminish the trust deficit. So you walk into one of our accredited PHCs, whether it's public or private, and we have LASHMA, which is that agency that manages it. You, know, you won't be accredited as a care deliverer until you've met certain standards and that and part of that standard is hospitality and medical etiquette you know how do you how are you received when you get there are you go and sit down there or hello good afternoon sir how can we help you you know and then you produce your card and you get your treatment and you have a good experience because what you pay for insurance 8500 naira for a year of health bouquet of health services free of charge you know that you can go to a hospital for one time and come away with a bill of 50,000 naira for... That 8.5 in some hospitals who don't even cover the card. Exactly, you know. So, but you see, it's pooled funding, you know. So it's not like that 8,500. You see, other people have bought 8,500 and never used it. So the pooled funding comes together and is beneficial to you, is beneficial to the system. It helps the system improve the infrastructure, doctors are happier and uh, um, health, allied health professionals are more likely to remain in a system where this kind of uh, demands infrastructure is in place. The other thing that that leads to naturally would be public and private partnership. Um, yes. As I said, when I was asking you the last question, government can put in only so much because it has to attend to other needs. Correct. Uh, so this is where the private sector has room to act. Yes. Uh, but you find that because the health sector doesn't appear uh, in many societies is viewed as a social service. And therefore, when you come into it and you say you're dealing with it as a business, people tend to look at you and mm. they, they do a double take. But in other climes, that is the way it is done. And that's why their services are of such top-notch quality. Mm -hmm. Now, getting people to accept that you pay for what you get can be difficult once the mindset indicates that this is a social service, so it's not supposed to make profit. It's just supposed to be a service for which taxpayer funds uh, are responsible. How do, how do you get to have the private sector join government 
in such a way that it makes sense for them because they can possibly make money while offering the service and government can release some of the stress on its neck mm -hmm. in terms of providing facilities and funding. So, yes, this, this is critically important. Um, so, as you know, Mr. Governor is increasing the health budget every year as best he can. You know, so it's gone up from 9 to 10 to 11 percent as uh, trying to approach 12 percent, trying to approach that magical 15 percent. Um, so at the same time, you know, we as, as government is in, improving the budgetary allocation to health, we have drawn up our master plan for the four years. And when we look at our master plan to convert Lagos into a first class medical hub where we're reversing medical tourism, we're reversing brain drain, we're actually attracting people from the rest of Nigeria and from the rest of the sub-region to Lagos as a medical tourism destination. We drew up the master plan, uh, not just in the public service, but you know how we influence the private sector. And we looked at the budget and it's way above what budgetary allocation we have. So the first thing we have to do is just make sure we maximize the drawdown and the impact on the budget that's been given to us. After that, uh, we ensure that there are efficiencies in the system where we're plugging all the leaks and the drainages. And then we go into a blended finance strategy, which is where we bring in the private sector. And we did this so well in COVID. We soon realized in the first wave that the numbers of cases that were coming in was way in excess of what government facilities could have managed. So we invited the private sector in and we remained in control, but we defined the benchmark, we defined the standard, you know, and the private sector initially were a bit scared, but soon there was quite a deluge of interest in both testing and delivery of care and vaccination. So it worked beautifully in COVID, you know, that government private sector marriage. Um, Sooner or later, as you said, government was able to transfer some of the responsibility to the private sector and it triggered the economy. You know, people knew that if they went to a private uh, facility, um, they were going to pay some fees. What we did as government was to make sure that the standard was right, that there was price controlling, you were not charging in excess of what you need to charge, and that we're protecting the public. You know, and once we put those measures in place, and there was good governance. Once we put those measures in place, the private sector were very happy to work with government to deliver a service that was life-saving for the entire state. You know. And it, instead of dropping the economy, we generated a COVID-like economy within the private sector that kept things uh, ticking over. So using that experience, we are now preparing the same kind of strategy in a PPP arrangement through blended financing, whereby we're inviting, after all, 70% of Lagosians seek their care in the private sector. So this is the Ministry of Health. It's a Ministry of Health for health of all Lagosians. It's not just Lagosians going to public facilities. We need to make sure <coughs> excuse me, that we're ensuring standards in the private sector and where possible we're creating opportunities for the private sector to work with the public sector. When we are giving you volume and outsourcing services to you, then we can dictate prices because it's an economy of scale. Right. right? So, you know, you're seeing much larger people, but 
we're managing the cost, right? The standard rises, the clients are happy, there's income generation both in the private sector. We are relieving our budget, we're taking the pressure off our budget. We're able to use that for other things and to develop others, other, other facilities in, in the state. And so everybody's happy. The, the economy is ticking over. People are making a livelihood out of healthcare delivery and government is feeling relieved and some of the pressure is taken off. It doesn't mean that we don't keep on increasing our budget. It doesn't mean that we don't keep on setting the standard. It doesn't mean that we don't keep on plugging the holes. It doesn't mean that we don't keep on ensuring that the budget translates into meaningful, impactful programs that increases the standard and the quality of health in the community, as you just asked. One of the places where you have gaps, obvious gaps, uh, is in terms of the numbers. And when I say numbers, I'm talking about the numbers of personnel. Doctors, nurses, midwives, all this. Because all these areas are not people you can just bring in. They're not like security or admin clerks and so on. I mean, this, in the case of doctors, 7, 8, 10, 12, 15 years, depending on the type of doctor and the level. Uh, nurses, the same thing and so on. So, we never have enough, so to speak. And our population is moving exponentially where it was last year, isn't where it is. I was listening to a very interesting argument a bit earlier to say, look, we've got to somehow slow down the population to allow the facilities catch up. Otherwise, we're going to be running this race permanently. Um, in terms of doctors, nurses, and because you've just established that a lot of the care and concern is at the base, yes. you also find that most of your colleagues um, don't want to go to the base. They don't want to go to the rural areas and attend to people. They'd rather remain in Ikeja and Victoria Island and so on. And this is replicated. It's not unique to Lagos. It's right across the country. Correct. And because they're, they're, they're such professionals of limited quantity, they get to dictate. So you can't really force them. So how do those people at the rural areas get services if the people who are supposed to offer them the services don't want to go in that direction they yeah. want to remain here so another one of our strategic initiatives is access to care for people in hard to reach areas of lagos state and hard to reach areas is anywhere like a riverine area where there are no roads where there's some security issues or where if there are roads you know the roads are difficult you know there's to navigate to navigate need. So we've launched a uh, access to rural health, uh, rural um, outreach program. Uh, and one of the things we've just, uh, if you notice, we launched a water clinic a few weeks ago where we purposely designed an, a water ambulance, which will start to navigate to some of these clinics in, 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 in water, uh, water rind areas. Charlotte, yes. yeah. so, that's a pilot, you know, we're going to see how that goes and then we're going to start collecting more and more of these water ambulances and water clinics that will take personnel to these areas and also bring patients back who have complications. Um, and then there's, you know, incentives, you know, so we're putting in uh, hard, the hardship incentives. So Lagos is divided into the Bile zones. And the way we navigate it is that we want X number of specialists and X number of medical personnel per Ibile zone. 
And some of these Ibilla zones comprise some of these hard-to-reach areas. So by definition, when we're allocating medical resources to these five locations in Lagos, you automatically will be um, appointed into one of these hard-to-reach areas. And then we'll define a hardship allowance. <laughs> and you'll go there and we'll support you. And we're developing, we're building infrastructure in these hard-to-reach areas. So it's not as if you're going to be going into the bundus and you know, you're under a hut or outside <laughs> under a palm tree or a coconut tree. No, we're, we're trying to develop the infrastructure. We're trying to incentivize you. We'll do it on a rotational basis. You can come and go, you spend some time there and you come back and then we'll have, you know, mobility that takes you there and, and set up, you know, infrastructure with uh, renewable energy and that kind of thing. So we're very deliberate about reaching these areas. Fortunately for us, nowhere is too rural and too hard to get in Lagos. It's not like, you know, you're going to some of the states in the rest of Nigeria where you have to travel a long distance and sometimes there are security implications. Uh, so for us, it's not too difficult and, you know, most parts of Lagos can be reached somehow. It's just that, as you rightly pointed out, maybe somebody doesn't want to go and spend three months there, you know. So when we're gradually getting there and, you know, we have a lot of medical personnel in Lagos, despite the impression that there is brain drain in Nigeria. There is brain drain in Nigeria, but most of the brains will drain to Lagos. <laughs> and then from Lagos, if they don't make it in Lagos, Lagos then, then, they drain out. then they bounce out. So that's a big concern to us. And if you know, we've been putting very deliberate things in place. Mr. Governor's had a lot of time for these associations, the medical doctors, the nurses, the allied professionals, to find out what are your grievances? What exactly is the problem? You know, and we've managed to address, you know, there have been strike threats throughout the past two years. You know, we've been able to meet with them, sit around the table and address each and every one of their problems to their satisfaction, you know. And so most of the medical doctors and nurses and allied professionals are, you know, relatively much happier now in Lagos than they were uh, before, you know, as we've managed to address strategically some of the issues that they've complained about. So that's one thing. Uh, brain drain will always happen because people are always wanting to go outside to maybe get a better education or a better postgraduate or salaries better or whatever. But what we're doing is we have another strategic approach, which is what we call brain gain, brain gain strategy. You know, so if you're a newly qualified doctor and nurse and you find it that you find out that you want to go abroad, you know, so okay, you go abroad but you're a Lagosian or you're a Nigerian. There are not many Nigerians who are abroad that don't want to come home. If you put the right infrastructure, the right facilities in place, a lot of them will come back. So we allow, you know, in our own hearts, we're saying, oh yes, we've lost so many doctors, but they're still Nigerians, they're still Lagosians. They go abroad, they get one, two, three specialties, they become extremely um, sophisticated medical experts, you know, and then what we're doing in Lagos is we're diversifying our medical infrastructure. So we're no longer focusing only on general hospitals. We're now working on a comprehensive cancer facility, a cardiac and renal center. We're building a psychiatric 
hospital, 500 bed psychiatric hospital, and then a 1,000 bed rehabilitation center. We are developing an infectious disease research institute, and we've got a few others. We want to develop geriatrics. We want to develop spinal and, and nervous institution. We're now developing a short-stay specialist facility at Lagos Island General Hospital, you know, where you can come in for your endoscopy, your arthroscopy, things that you would normally fly out of the country for. Now, when you set that up, all these specialties within the system, then our colleagues abroad, doctors, nurses, are saying, hey, there's something to come back home for. You know, these facilities, I don't have to move back to Lagos, but I can come back and spend a month or come back and spend a weekend, and then eventually people who want to return back home will come and work in facilities with the type of equipment that they are accustomed to working with abroad. Sophisticated equipment and well-built infrastructure um, and, and, and giving therapies that they are accustomed to giving in sophisticated climes. So that closes the loop. And we're already beginning to see that. As we build these sophisticated facilities, Nigerians are very curious about what's going on. Our colleagues in the diaspora are saying, oh, can we come and be part of this? And they are part of it, and they are coming back. So we see that in the next few years that we're going to have this relatively sophisticated medical environment where our Nigerian doctors, our Lagosians, will come back to in our brain gain strategy. So it's okay for them to leave because they get trained at their expense, Europe's expense, to a very high level. And they come back and of course they're going to transfer capacity here and they're going to train our younger ones. And then our younger ones will be less inclined to go, to go abroad. You're one of them. Absolutely. Because uh, a look at your CV reveals that you spent a bulk of your career abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, top-notch institutions, huge facilities, excelling, and then you came home. Um, I, I read some of the messages that were said to have been sent to you when you took that decision, like, why? Where are you going? What happened? And all that. And you said, well, I'm going home. I, I, I want to see what it is I can uh, contribute. But upon arrival here, it must have been a complete sea change for you, mm -hmm. um, coming from where you were coming here. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, it was going, you know, <laughs> the other way around. Uh, how did you navigate that, both from a physical and a mental perspective, to find that many of the things you were used to taking for granted, you now had to really work for or do without? How much of that did you have to do, and how did you do it? So it's not the first time I came home. I've tried to come home at least three times, you know, and each time you face that frustration that you're talking about. And, you know, you're young enough to say, okay, I can't do what I'm trained to do here. Let me go back. So you go back, you carry on doing what you're doing abroad. Then you try again, you know, you come back and still the environment is not quite right, you know, and you're not prepared to build a whole institute on your own, you know, without, it's, there's a threshold that's required. But on this occasion, you know, I've been in many parts of the world, as you said, you know, and I just thought, all right, this is time to really 
go and sit down and navigate whatever the problem is. And I think that the level of medical care was already beginning to rise. We're already experiencing some sophistication in, in the medical environment. And my predecessor, Dr. Jidi Idris, was very instrumental in me coming back and persuading me to fit back into the system. And I worked with him for four years before taking on this position, you know, helping the system, you know, build a more robust biosecurity framework, uh, surveillance system, uh, ensuring that we had the right infrastructure in place should we ever come across a biological threat like Ebola. And sure enough, COVID came along and thank God, Jide Idris had already put those things in place with help from a network of other people like myself, um, brought in funding, built the, the right environment for Lagos to be prepared, you know, and it rubs off, it, it has a domino effect. You know, so you came back and the, the, the if you like, you know, the, the ground was a bit more fertile for planting seeds that were going to grow into, into uh, institutions that one can say are of international standard. Um, being an academic before I became commissioner was also very helpful because it created a very large network for me both in country and uh, across the continent and abroad. So um, coming into the position of commissioner with the support of many people uh, in Lagos, um, the political angle was one thing, you know, <laughs> being a technocrat versus a, a, a politician, you know, but one, you know, you're in a position, you're a policy maker now, you know, so you bring your wealth of experience with you. You know what Nigeria needs, you know what Lagos needs because you've seen it all around the world. So coming in as a policy maker, you're able to bring certain intellectuals with you to blend them into the system to have a sort of um, diffusion and one thing that i did that was very helpful was setting up a private sector think tank because there's a lot of expertise there's a lot of knowledge in the private sector and that think tank works with the ministry of health to infuse these ideas and we used a lot of this think tanking and strategic uh, formulations to not just respond to COVID, but to, to respond to all the other myriad of health problems that we have in the state. So gradually, we're raising the bar. Gradually, we're beginning to make Lagos the place to be for medical, advanced medical treatment. But at the same time, making sure that we're looking after the base at the primary level, because it's not all about tertiary academic and tertiary care. Everybody diabetes, hypertension, malaria, infectious diseases, birth control, neonatal, you know, child nutrition. And we're, we're paying attention to all these things because at the end of the day, we're looking at human capital. You need healthy people to go, healthy children to go to good schools, to get a product that are going to drive the Lagos economy and make Lagos competitive with London, New York, Milan, Japan, China, India. Why not? We are, somebody described Lagos as the equivalent of the Asian Tigers. We've got the right constitution and we've got the right leadership. We're under the leadership of uh, Governor Babajide Sanwalu, there's a drive to, to improve the sector. You know, and we've got great minds in Lagos, both in the civil service and in the private sector. You just need to bring all that together and set the bar, and things just fall into place. Professor Abayavi, 
Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so it's much. a pleasure, laddie. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com forward slash podcast to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Duluale. Goodbye. Thank you.